Hey friends, welcome to the Catalyst Podcast. We hope you enjoy what you're listening to, and may you find peace and grace in all the words that are before you. Lord God, we are, we are here together in this place, wanting to be so much more aware of your presence in our lives as individuals, but also as, as, as a church, as a body. We praise you for all that you are doing in the churches around this area, in Humboldt County, the way that you're moving through those communities, and that we get to be a part of that greater body of Christ. It is incredible. Lord, uh, we pray a special prayer over our veterans today as Tomorrow is that that day that we turn our attention to those who have given their lives in service for this country. We pray peace over many hearts and minds that are um, hurting and traumatized by what people have seen overseas, the things that people have experienced, the traumas that come up day to day, Lord. We pray your peace just invades hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We pray for healing over those who are traumatized and uh, tormented by the things they have seen. Lord, we pray that we can be the type of people and a country that truly comes around those who have served, and not to forget them, but to say, and not just a simple thank you, but actually care for people in their deepest need. May you break our heart for what breaks yours, Jesus. May it not be just a day out of the year, but may it be something that transforms us, that you transform us so we have eyes to see and ears to hear the things that you see and that you hear. And Jesus, our hands are open because we release this time before you right now. We know you have a word for each person in this room and for us as a community, and we have hands open to receive from you, Jesus. God, we come expectant. We come repentant. We come for encouragement and for grace. We come for your love. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. We're going to be in uh, Mark chapter 10 this morning. Uh, This, actually this passage, and we'll just, actually I'm just going to jump right in, 10 verse 17. Um, It says here in Mark 10 verse 17, it says, as Jesus started on his way. So I want to just stop there for a second. That, that, that word that Mark uses, on his way, is very intentional. Jesus is starting his way towards Jerusalem, towards his death on the cross. And that word that Mark uses here for way is supposed to remind us as readers towards the beginning passage in Mark. Remember in the beginning of Mark in chapter 1, we see John the Baptist preparing the way for the Lord, for Jesus. So actually, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. It says, uh, let me see here. In Mark chapter 1, there's a quote from Isaiah. It says in verse 3, prepare the way for the Lord to make straight paths for him. So this passage that we're going to be in today in Mark 10 has to do with the way that Jesus is going. That, That it started with John the Baptist in the wilderness baptizing people in the Jordan River. And this... This is something new that hadn't really happened before. Baptism was a familiar thing that happened for the people of Israel. Baptism in a river 
that was unclean, that was an uncontrolled sort of a space. No one knows what animal may have died upriver or if there was any kind of feces in the river. It was not a controlled environment. And yet John the Baptist was baptizing people in the name of repentance, meaning to change the way that you were going for the forgiveness of sins. And in this passage, John is preparing the way for Jesus. We read that Jesus gets baptized by John, and then right from there, Jesus goes to this very lonely place, a place of solitude, where he fasts, and he prays, and he prepares himself for a ministry that probably won't be ponies and rainbows. Like, this is going to be a very difficult ministry for Jesus. He's preparing himself for that, and while Jesus is there in that lonely place, he experiences very real and human temptation that I don't believe he was immune to just because he's the divine. Like, I think he was experiencing those temptations, those actual struggles of what it means to be in a very highly vulnerable place where he was starving and in need, and the enemy tempts him with meeting those needs through riches and through fame and through any desire he could possibly ever have. The enemy's like, you don't even have to do these hard things that God is calling you to. I'm going to just hand it over to you. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to fight you on this. I, I I am filled with the spirit here. So we see this happen for 40 days, and then he leaves that solitude space, and he enters into an intentional ministry. And the first thing that we have recorded of Jesus within this intentional ministry time is him saying, the kingdom of God is near. Let's see, it's verse um, 15. He says, the time has come in chapter 1. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So I wanted to spend a minute here on what the kingdom of God is. I know we've talked about it a lot, but kingdom language isn't familiar language for most of us who live in the United States, besides if we're keeping tabs on the royals, Harry and Meghan, is that their names? Yeah, that's like the closest thing we have to what a kingdom looks like. It's not familiar language to us, but a kingdom is the reign and rule of an authority. And for us, the reign and rule is God. God created this world with a purpose and a meaning where God's creation, the way that God created the world, was that purpose and meaning was creation would then live out this bend towards love and towards wholeness, where creation isn't fighting or hurting each other, where jealousy and envy and gossip didn't rule people's hearts, where the exploitation of the marginalized And where women, using women and children's bodies for another person's benefit and enjoyment, where violence and racism and greed and money, sex and power was not ruling and reigning. So God's kingdom and God's purpose and for creation was one where kindness and compassion was meant to rule and reign. It's where sin and death doesn't have the final word in our lives where we aren't held hostage by our fears. This is what Jesus was announcing to the people there, to to the people of Israel, to a people who were occupied by Rome, by a violent force, that they, they were wondering where their next meal was coming from. And for many of those that Jesus was sharing this good news with, it certainly didn't seem like God's kingdom was near or that God was near. 
And I think for us today, we feel that sometimes too. We might, we, we know that God's kingdom's at hand. We know that God's kingdom is in this world. We know that Jesus has, over, has, has overthrown death and overthrown sin, and yet there's still that sense, is God near? Is God's kingdom near? Yet we know that there's still hope. You all dragged yourself out of bed this morning and showed up to church because you have that sense of hope in your life. That relentless and that aggressive hope that God is still involved, that God is faithful, that God's covenantal promises are still true, and that was true for the people then. When Jesus began his ministry, he began his ministry to a people who were still hopeful. And in those spaces of hope, Jesus begins inviting people to follow him and to bring forth God's kingdom of kindness and compassion. And most of you know that the Hebrew people have that word for kindness and compassion, God's kingdom, and that word is shalom. It's, it's that sense of, of unbroken connection that we're supposed to have within ourselves and within each other, within our relationship with God and our relationship with creation. But shalom cannot come, come to, to, to hand without repentance. That's why Jesus is saying, repent, change the direction you're going, and come back to Jesus. Come back to God, because Shalom is here, Jesus says, so believe it. And Jesus invites followers and invites dreamers and invites hopers and risk-takers and invites people to leave everything behind, their livelihoods, their families, their income, their identities, their ways of making meaning, behind to then follow him and bring forth God's kingdom. Jesus makes disciples. So turn with me to Mark chapter 1. We'll be in 1 again here. It says in verse 16, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw fishermen and his brother Andrew, or sorry, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake. They were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. All right, now, next page, uh, chapter 2, verse 13, it says, Once again Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, Sitting at the tax collector's booth, follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. There are, the kingdom of God is one that always needs people to participate in its happening. There are two rulings in this world. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of the world. And the kingdom of the world is very dominant in our life, in this area in the way the world is structured. It it is a dominant force that says that you don't have enough. The kingdom of the world says that there's so much to fear, so just don't even step forward into this thing. That you have to take as much as you can. That you need to look out for you and for yourself first. That you must earn love. The kingdom of the world says that you don't need anybody because you are independent and that you are fully capable by yourself. 
That is the lies of the enemy. And the kingdom of God is absolutely opposite of that. The kingdom of God says it's not about you. It's about God. That you are not created for independence, but for complete dependence on God and interdependence on the family of God. That you are created for community, for goodness. You are created to love your neighbor as yourself, to seek justice in all things for those who are on the margins. The kingdom of God says that you are lovable and that you are worthy of love. So at this point that we'll be in in Mark's story, in this gospel in Mark 10, Jesus has been preaching about the kingdom of God and has been revealing God's kingdom through healing the sick, through casting out demons, through restoring relationships, and by creating this new kind of community, this new kind of family. And now he's on his way to Jerusalem where he'll spend his last days before his death on the cross. So we're going to start in verse 13 and go all the way to 31. Are we needing Bibles? Do we need Bibles around? Chapter 10. Chapter 10. Anybody need a Bible or are you all good? Okay, well, we've got more right up here if anybody needs one in the bin. All right, so it says, People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. So children, if you remember, children are those without status. They have no titles. They they aren't looking for, for a status or title either. They're like in that space of vulnerability. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor. Then you will have and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, How hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed, and they said to each other, Well, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. 
But many who are first will be last, and last first. What's interesting is how the story begins with this man running to Jesus. Uh, he seems very desperate. You know, like, I, I need to get to Jesus before he gets too far along the way, before I can catch up with him. Running was something only servants and children did because running exposed people's legs, and that was considered undignified, highly undignified. And so it, here he comes running to Jesus, and he falls at Jesus' feet, showing that Jesus is the one who he's giving the authority to or the, the respect to, and he blocks Jesus from walking on his way, and he interrupts Jesus' schedule. Now, Jesus always knows a person's heart, right? Like, he knows somebody's heart before they even take a word. We don't know the guy's heart. At this point, we don't, we don't know anything about him. Like, on the other Gospels, some Gospels say he was this young guy. Another Gospel says he's a ruler. Another Gospel says he's a rich man. And so we put this label on him of the rich young ruler, but that's not what Mark says here. All we know is that he seems desperate. The disciples don't know his heart. Maybe they're associating him right now, like when he comes, associating him with that desperate father who is so in need of healing for his son that he's like willing to pray out to Jesus, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief that you will actually heal, that God can actually heal my son. I mean, maybe that's what they're thinking of who he is. Maybe this running man needed needed Jesus like that father needed Jesus in those moments. And I think that that man, this man needed Jesus, yes, but but there was an area in his life that he was unwilling to sacrifice and surrender to God. And this man believed that eternal life was owed to him. He asks, when will I inherit it? How will I inherit it? An inheritance is something that someone is born into and will receive from their family after the death of the holder of the wealth. Someone has to die for another to receive the inheritance. And, you know, you think of like that one parable that we're so familiar with of, of the prodigal son where there's this, this, Jesus tells the story of a son who is so determined from his father while his father is alive to get this inheritance. He demands the inheritance from his father. And it reveals the son's heart where he desired wealth more than he desired his own family. And he knew his father, he, he, knew, he knew that uh, he was telling his father in that moment of like, give me my inheritance, that he was telling his father he wishes his father was dead. But he didn't care that he was saying that because he was ready to do his own thing. And I think in our own lives, sometimes the father allows us to do our own thing for a while for us to see that we actually do need our father in heaven how much we actually need our Father in heaven. Sometimes God says to us, thy will be done for us to experience our wills apart from God's will. We find out that this man in this story is very wealthy. The wealthy were understood to be blessed by God. They were the ones that, from the poor people's perspectives, that they were the ones who would inherit eternal life because God was obviously on their side. 
That, that when Jesus speaks out the blessings of the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. That, that, is, that language is so radical because blessing says God is on your side. In your depressed state, in your state of absolute zero, God is on your side. And this was so backwards for those people listening then. During this time, the wealthy uh, would have gained their wealth they would have grown in their wealth and stature, most often from the wealth of the poor that would have been around them. The poor in those days would often have had to sell their land, their family land, the family land that had been there from generation to generation, the land that represents God's promise to them. They would have had to sell it to help pay for their taxes and their debts and their expenses to keep food on the table. There are different accounts of Poor people having to sell their land and then having to sell their children and then having to sell themselves just to make ends meet. And the monies were not going to just like the kings. They were going to feed the wealthy around them. They were pocketing the wealth. The wealthy kept growing in wealth and the poor kept getting poorer. Economic inequality was like destroying the masses at the bottom and it built up more wealth for those on the top. Sounds familiar. There is a deeply rooted belief at this time, and I think still today, of this prosperity gospel where God must approve of the richest because obviously they are the most blessed. So for the disciples to ask this question in verse 23, how, or no, where does it say? He says in verse 26, who then can be saved? Where Jesus is saying, the rich can't be saved. They can't get in there in that sort of a way. And the, and the, the disciples say, well, 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 if the rich can't be saved, then who can possibly be saved? There's no hope for the rest of us. And Jesus responds by turning their inquiry on its head. And, and, and he's saying, yes, you're right. You're right. It is impossible to be saved. You're right. This is an impossible request. But because for humans it might be impossible, for God it is not possible. Saving is impossible for humans. You can't buy your way into eternal life. You can't get into God's good graces by your own merit or by your own goodness or your own perfection and keeping all the commands perfectly. It's not about what you do. It's about what God has done. With humans, this is impossible, Jesus says. But with God, anything is possible. God doesn't work from our understandings. God doesn't bend to our wishes and to our wills around our fragility or around our desire for ease and comfort. God will always meet you in your present state, in this present moment. But God is not a genie granting wishes or like this vending machine God where you engage with God when you need something, so you press that button for the things you want when you want it. What we see in this passage and throughout all of Scripture really is that God desires a relationship with you through Jesus, and that relationship looks like one that's built on trust. Jesus wants you to trust him. Following Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus is built on trust, and Jesus is trustworthy. And sometimes trust looks like giving up something that may have been made into a crutch. 
Sometimes it means that you have to give up something that might feel like if you give it up, it'll be just too hard of a loss for you. Usually it's something that's based on an identity marker, like some sort of belief in who you are and how you're seen. Jesus doesn't always ask us to leave behind things every single day of our lives, but there is a choice we have to make when Jesus says, come and follow me, to leave it behind. There's always a cost in following him. Following Jesus is risky. It just is. It's risky because being loved is risky and loving is risky. There is always a cost in love. If you are giving somebody love, there's always that cost in it that they might not receive that love back. And that is so scary. There's always a risk that we take when we give and receive love, but I believe that that risk is always worth it. And we see Jesus turn to this man, and he looks at him with love. He loved this man. Like you were saying, Megan, like how incredibly deep that love would have been. That, that Jesus, Jesus was traveling on his way to Jerusalem. He was on that way, on that path that he knew he had to take. It was a path of sacrifice. It was a path of surrender. And it was a path of death. It was a path full of, of a future of fear and trembling. Like a way, this way Jesus asked his father to remove from him, to rescue him from it because it felt impossible. And yet with God, all things are possible. And Jesus is on his way to death. And this wealthy man stops him. And Jesus doesn't respond out of frustration or out of anger, even though he knows this man's heart, even though he knows what this man will do, even though he knows the choices this man will make later on in the future. He doesn't respond that way. Jesus looks at him, the text says, and he loves him. This love in this word for Greek is agape. It's this complete love. It's, it's a love like shalom, that sense of completion. It's, it's, it's a kingdom love that transcends time and space and behavior. And Jesus knew the risk that he was taking to give that man that love. Like he knew the risk that this kind of love would bring Jesus' way, and that he asks this man, Can you love, can you risk this love back? Can you trust God instead of wealth? Can you leave behind economic certainty that your life contains right now for a greater riches to come? Can you trust God in this? Can you take a risk? on love like this. And the text says that he went away sad. That word sad, it's attached to a metaphor in the Greek of a cloudy sky. (laughs) Like he left burdened by grief. He didn't come and follow into an uncertain future of hope and joy and, and persecution. He left with a pretty certain future that was sorrowful and unfulfilling. Jesus told his disciples right before we got to that passage, he told his disciples that one cannot receive God's kingdom and participate in the things of God unless we become like children. 
Anybody who's a parent or has spent any time with children when they're little, not teenagers, this is different for teenagers, of course. Teenagers aren't kids anymore, but they can't watch bad movies. Uh, Children are people, little ones, who follow their parents because it's safe. Following their parents makes sense. They know they are loved and they can trust their parents to be the way, the truth, and the life for them. They don't follow for a reward, but because it's designed to, for how they are lived. They are, they are designed to live in such a way to follow their parents as the ones they can put their full trust in. Children don't see this relationship with their parents, if it is a good relationship, they don't see it as risky. For them to love and to be loved by their moms and their dads is not a risk. And this is the kind of relationship that Jesus is inviting us to have with our Father in heaven. Jesus came to reveal the Father and what it is to have an abiding and a close and a loving relationship, what that looks like with God. And Jesus invites us to step into that same kind of relationship that Jesus has with his Father. But as adults, we know that there is that kind of love takes a certain amount of risk. It means that we have to risk giving up a part of ourselves. It means that we have to take up our cross and follow Jesus as he invites us to do so. This is a sacrifice of ourself. It means that, that we are laying down our identities to follow Jesus. And if you are defined first by your desire to influence or by your desire for wealth or a career or family ties or the amount of property you own or your social media profile or any other defining characteristics that we label ourselves with first and foremost, that we're known as the rich young ruler instead of the disciple who's loved by Jesus, These distort the image of God that God has created you to exude, to live out. God is not a God of lack. God is not wanting to make your life really sucky right now or really hard. God does not desire you to suffer, but does desire you to rely on God. And when we make those things our God, then we are creating idols that we worship instead of placing our trust in the God of all things. We are not meant to rely on our things for our identity or for our purpose. We are meant to rely on God. We make things into our God when we choose to worship them and to pay attention to them and to be guided by those people or that popularity instead of the God who gave his life for us and who loves us. Sometimes following Jesus, most of the times following Jesus, maybe even all of the times, it means that we are giving up something. When I met Jason, he told me a story a few months into our relationship about how he came to know Jesus. And when he was in junior high, his mom signed him up for like this uh, VBS. uh, It was like a day camp at a church. And one of the weeks was a VBS, a vacation Bible school. And at this VBS, the leaders uh, told him about Jesus. And he gave his life over to Christ when he was in junior high. 
And Jason grew up with his grandparents. His parents had split up, and so he was raised by his grandma and grandpa. And he lived on the street with lots of different kids. And he had been friends with these different kids for a really long time. They were his best friends. And this group of friends on his street growing up, he loved them, but they weren't Christians. And they were not very kind to him. They were actually total jerks. But he began attending this youth group at this church after he came to know the Lord. And he was getting more involved in the church into high school, and, and, and he, he, was, he was noticing that his friends from his street were influencing him towards drinking and drugs and very much away from Jesus. You know, like when you're, when you're in a place of like not having really good people around you, instead of you being able to influence others towards Christ, they're influencing you towards things away from Jesus. He was definitely in that space of being influenced away from Jesus instead of being brought towards Christ. Like college? Like college, exactly. Yes, yes. And it was around sophomore year of high school, Jason felt like Jesus was asking him to give up his friendships, to like truly follow Jesus as a disciple. And he did. And if you can imagine a sophomore in high school giving up the only friends you have and, and not taking phone calls anymore and not going skateboarding with them and, and, and having to eat lunch by yourself at school and having to skateboard by yourself and not having your parents around and having a grand, really, really broken family. He didn't hang out with anybody. He was alone. He had no friends. For three months, he sat at school alone. And it was a risky thing for him to do. Those three risky months of wondering what Jesus was doing and if it was all worth it, Jason discovered Jesus loving him all along. And Jesus brought Jason, this group of five guys that, that were from Christian families, they became his best friends. And instead of broken families being Jason's teacher, he became discipled by his friend's parents who loved him and included him into their lives. They stocked their pantry with his favorite cold cereal. They took him to church with them every chance they could get. They enveloped him into their families. This whole verse that Jesus says that, that and no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or fields for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. He received an entirely new family. This risk was huge. But the constant for Jason was Christ. And for Jason, it may have felt impossible and the future was uncertain. There's no guarantees that if I leave these people, or if I leave these, these, this behavior, or if, I, if I leave this job, or if I leave this, this community, or whatever it is that is holding me back from God's kingdom in some way, there's no guarantees that it's just going to be all rainbows and ponies afterwards. But yet Christ is with us in all things. And for Jason, it may have felt impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The future may have felt uncertain, but the future is God's kingdom. And Jesus says to just see it, to leave it behind, to come and follow me. We're going to go into communion, which I believe communion is like the most beautiful uh, physical response that we have to the words of Christ. 
Jesus, we can read the Bible all we want, and I love the words of Jesus, and I can speak out Jesus' words, and, and other people who teach can speak it out as well, but, but it's just words that come in, embedded in our minds. Communion becomes that physical act of the words made flesh. It's taking all that Jesus said and represented and then consuming it into our bodies and allowing all that Jesus represented to, to come through us, to transform our lives, and to set us on a different path forward, to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. We practice open communion here in this church, so there's no need to be a member or or anything to be able to come forward to this table. It's uh, We just invite you to have a heart willing to receive Jesus, to receive what Jesus represented, to allow him to transform and change you, to be set on a new way of living and seeing the world. We'll sing three songs of worship together. There's generosity boxes as well. Um, that's a form of our response and worship. And then we'll close with a blessing later on. So let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for what you are doing in this world. We thank you that you invited us to come and follow you. Jesus, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may this time of worship be that symbolic practice of your kingdom that is here and now. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.